I have lived in important places, times when great events were decided. Who owned that half rood of rock? A no man's land surrounded by our pitchfork armed claims. I heard the Duffy shouting, damn your soul, and old McCabe stripped to the waist, seen step the plot defying blue cast steel. Here is the march along these iron stones. That was the year of the Munich bother. Which was more important? I incline to lose my faith in Ballyrush and Gorton, till Homer's ghost came whispering to my mind. He said, I made the Iliad from such a local row. Gods make their own importance. Hello, and welcome to Words That Burn, a podcast about poetry. Each week I read a poem, look at its inner workings, and hopefully show you what makes it tick. This week's poem is Epic by Patrick Kavna. Before we begin, I have a suggestion. Try to find a copy of the poem somewhere so that you can read along. If you're having trouble finding it, you'll find it linked below in the description. This is a special poem for me, as it was one of the first I ever really felt a sense of understanding about. I came across it when I was around 17, and prior to that, hadn't been interested in poetry all that much. This is truly one of the first pieces that clicked for me. Patrick Kavna is as highly regarded as many of the great Irish poets. He's up there with Longley, Heaney, Yeats and Boland. His work shares so many themes in common with them. It speaks of an older Ireland, one still struggling to move into the modern era. It has a deep obsession with the land and how it has shaped the people living on it. One of the unusual things it shares is that it's steeped in Greek mythology and illusion. Despite so many similarities, Kavna stands apart from all of them in some distinct ways. He had little interest in obscurity or layered analogy in his work, and preferred a far more direct approach. In this sense, he could be looked upon as a narrative poet. This lack of care for literary devices has led to him being overlooked on occasion within the Irish canon. Another great difference, however, was that he had no interest in glorifying the land and rural communities in the ways that his predecessors, like Yeats, had. Yeats was one of many responsible for what is now known as the Celtic Revival in Irish literary history. During that time, much of the work Yeats produced was intended to glorify Ireland. Much of the work written by poets and authors at that time was meant to form a kind of nationalistic canon, something to inspire the people. Many years later, Kavna would look upon this kind of thing as vulgar and false. He had little or no time for rural communities and the way in which they were often idealised. He once wrote, Although the literal idea of the peasant is of a farm labouring person, in fact, a peasant is all the mass of mankind which lives below a certain level of consciousness. They live in the dark cave of the unconscious, and they scream when they see the light. We can see that his regard for the rural or peasant way of life bordered on something approaching contempt. That contempt is played out in this very poem. For those reading the poem, you'll have noticed that it has 14 lines, which clearly marks it out as a sonnet. 
The sonnet is a form that has endured the test of time. You're probably familiar with them in a Shakespearean sense, but it's become a popular modern form in its own right. The reason for its popularity is important to understanding Kavanagh's work. Sonnets have remained used for their clear narrative structure and the way they can guide a reader through a poem. It is short and easy to follow, so would be appealing to Kavanagh, who preferred to keep things simple. It's also a form that allows for subtle argument and debate without alienating the reader under a mountain of imagery and obscure analogy. In this way, it's perfect for the reflection Kavanagh is having. We can see the narrative quality of his work on display in the opening section. I have lived in important places, times when great events were decided. Who owned that half rood of rock, and no man's land surrounded by our pitchfork armed claims? From these opening lines, the roots of an argument are established. A contest of wills is set in motion. The first two lines are tongue in cheek as they describe rural Ireland, which at the time in which the poem is set, 1938, Ireland would not have been a major player on the global stage. Therefore, calling them important times and places is something of a joke. The tone set here is one that will continue throughout the poem. The notion of trivial events being transformed into exactly what the title hints at, an epic. The following two lines are filled with the language of agriculture and rural Ireland. A rood is an old measurement for a half acre of land. Here, a half rood is smaller again, barely worth arguing over. It's important to look at the word rock. Nothing can grow there, reducing the value even more. This is a truly trivial reason to argue, yet it has encouraged men to take up arms against one another. The pitchfork armed claims is a wonderfully fluid piece of imagery. In a real epic, it might be a sword or spear of legend, a weapon of deadly possibility. But once more, the best these men have to offer are the tools of their trade. The Hiberno or Irish setting of the poem is intensified as our speaker bears further witness. I heard the Duffy shouting, damn your soul. An old McCabe stripped to the waist, seen step the plot defying blue cast steel. Here is the march along these iron stones. That was the year of the Munich bother. Which was more important? The names of our two warring clans are revealed, the Duffys and the McCabes, both old Irish family names in their own right. The imagery of combat is found here. Old McCabe stripped to the waist is particularly striking. How deep does this feud run, if even the old are ready to lay down their lives? That language quickly turns to a heroic tone, as he steps the plot defying blue cast steel. He is merely placing his foot over a threshold, but you'd swear he faced down a minotaur or some ancient beast. Here is the march along these iron stones is a further injection of militaristic language into the poem. The march implies a huge army ready for battle, disciplined and poised. It is a sharp juxtaposition with the two rural families in the midst of a spat. 
The iron stones conjure up images of weaponry and guns. The natural world of stone and rock is no longer there. The line has been drawn. And now, this half-rude is the realm of men and war. All these references to war and combat refer not only to the small tense scene we see reported here, but to the global stage of the time as well. I mentioned earlier that the poem is set around 1938. We can safely assume that from the line, that was the year of the Munich bother. The word bother here is ironic in the extreme. The event being referred to is the Munich Agreement. In 1938, as an attempt to avoid a second world war, the Prime Minister of England, Neville Chamberlain, met Adolf Hitler in Munich. As a result of the heavy toll World War I had taken on the British, Chamberlain conceded to allow German forces to encroach on Czechoslovakian land. However, while many world leaders were present in Munich for the signing of this agreement, Czechoslovakia was not even invited. Naturally, this was considered a huge betrayal to the Czechoslovakians. Without their allies, the Czechoslovakian border fell to Germany. Far from stopping there, Hitler saw the concession or appeasement as a sign of weakness and within the year had fully invaded the country. Chamberlain's action had not only failed to avoid further conflict, but could be looked upon as one of the inciting incidents of World War II. Far from being a simple bother, this was a cataclysmic event that would shape the world for decades to come. The sheer scale of such an event obliterates a family feud. Despite that, the final rhetorical question of which was more important has an obvious answer to those familiar with Irish culture. To the McCabe's and the Duffy's, there could be nothing more important than settling this dispute. Those huge world events are but a footnote in their own family histories. Here Kavna is doing two strange conflicting things. In one, he is showing how petty and small such land disputes can be. How on earth could you focus on a half rood of rock when the world threatens war? But on the other hand, he is showing that priorities shift from people to people. And the grand events that men put into motion, men who find themselves important, are not the focus of regular people. This commitment by two families to their land and ownership of it is a distinctly Irish one. It's no secret that there is an obsession with property and land in our culture. To Kavna, it always seemed as though that obsession almost bound the Irish people to their land. They were part of it, swallowed by it. Nowhere was that idea better explored than in his famous poem, The Great Hunger, which begins with the line, Clay is the word, and clay is the flesh. That obsession was often a great source of frustration for Kavna, as he felt it stopped the people of that land from ever advancing. The third and final section makes that abundantly clear. I incline to lose my faith in Ballyrush and Gordon, till Homer's ghost came whispering to my mind. He said, 
I made the Iliad from such a local row. Gods make their own importance. The Irish setting is reinforced by two typical place names, Ballyrush and Gordon. They could be any rural community here in Ireland, a reference to the fact that this scenario, two warring families, is not uncommon, an event that has played out time and time again. The poem was published in 1951, and so there is a far more reflective version of Kavna at work here. He seems to call his past self out, saying, I inclined to lose my faith. In this young Kavna, little to no faith in the people of Ireland is present, especially his home county of Monaghan. This is something he never hid. In one essay he wrote, And then I heard about having one's roots in the soil, of being a peasant, and I raged at Monaghan and the clay and all to that. In his youth, his opinion of the peasants he spoke about seemed to describe those who chose to be ignorant. Later, however, his perspective on this seemed to mellow with the understanding of time and age. He would go on to write, You hear of men and women who have chosen poverty, but you cannot choose poverty. Poverty has nothing to do with eating your fill today. It is anxiety about what's going to happen next week. The cliché poverty that you get in the working class novel or play is a formula. This newfound understanding, or perhaps forgiveness of his past, finds its way into the final few lines of the poem. The ghost of Homer is completely at odds with the rest of the poem. A strange spectre of antiquity, reanimated. Homer was regarded by many Irish poets as the greatest poet of tradition. His ability to create poems that stood the test of time was what he was most admired for. For many Irish writers, invoking the classical tradition gave the emerging Irish literary scene a legitimacy, an air of education, which challenged the frankly insulting depiction of the Irish in British media, where they were often portrayed as oafs or thugs. Homer's two greatest works, the Iliad and the Odyssey, inspired not only the Irish but generations of English language poets, most notably perhaps the Romantics, who found the grand scale of the works to be the perfect template for their own ideals and imagery. The idealization of gods and life were of particular interest to them. Naturally, Kavna took the exact opposite view. In his eyes, the Iliad was a story of everyday life, told in a relatable way. As academic Florence Impens put it, the Iliad does not transport him onto an imaginary journey to virgin lands, but echoes life and emotions on the farm. The Iliad is the famous epic detailing the siege of Troy. Whilst it is filled with gods and heroes, fundamentally, it's the tale of one man's wife leaving him for someone else, a local row, as it were. The final line is a humbling one. Much like the global scale comparison from earlier, 
This one gives the reader a new perspective. Gods make their own importance. It is human nature to look at the past and imagine it as a greater time. It is human nature to judge others. And sadly, it is human nature to occasionally deem ourselves better than others. What the final line makes clear, however, is that even those who we deem important and superior started out on a much more human footing. Kavna's attitude from earlier in the episode, his quote on how peasants live in the dark cave of the unconscious and they scream when they see the light, is skewered by Homer's words. His attitude was somewhat snobbish and elite. Now he is reminded that each person lives their own life shaped by what goes on around them. Not everyone can be a pillar of virtue and education. What is small and petty to one person can be an epic all its own to another. So why this poem? I think there are few Irish poets that have managed to capture the atmosphere of difficulty and depression that seemed to hang about Ireland in the early days of the 20th century. Patrick Kavna does so with ease. He built a myth around himself, that of the drunken vagabond and old Irish rogue, and it is one that I think shrouded the core of the man, a keen-eyed observer and satirist of real life, one who quite often was free of the yoke of idealization. In fact, far from being an idealist of the Irish in the style of Yeats or Joyce, Kavna wanted to show all sides of Irish life. He had no interest in stage Irish or paddywhackery. More than that, he avoided the romanticization of Ireland like the plague. The poem is a timely reminder that while we may judge others, we often lack the empathy to temper it. The concerns of another may seem to us, the concerns of another may seem madness to us, but that doesn't mean it isn't important in some form. It can be difficult as an outsider not to let our own values skew our experience. I count the line, gods make their own importance, among the best in all of Irish poetry. They act as a warning that people follow their own priorities, often think that what they are doing is the right course. In doing so, they really believe they are making the right choices. This poem reminds us that looking down on others is a dangerous path and that empathy is a choice. What's your reading of the poem? I'd like to point out, as always, that this is my interpretation and as such, very much up for debate. If you'd like to talk to me about it, you can reach me in a few ways. Send me an email at wordsthatburnpodcast at gmail.com or you can find my website www.wordsthatburnpodcast.com where you'll also find the show notes for this episode complete with references. If none of that suits you, I'm on Instagram. Just search Words That Burn Podcast. There you can find helpful study guides and bonus content. This episode was written and produced by me, Benjamin Colopy. The music in this week's episode is by Sergei Cheremizinov and is used under Creative Commons license. If you're enjoying the podcast, please consider giving me a review 
on whatever platform you listen on. I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to listen to me, and hopefully you'll hear from me again soon.